Soon may the IT team come to discontinue the Tezo Sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Hello, this is uh, Callum here. You're joining us live at the ECMID conference 2023, day one. Very exciting. I've uh, been let loose. There's no jam this time, so see what happens. And we're going to be taking some live reactions from some of the sessions today. So I'm joined here by our returning guest, first ever returning guest, Dr. Robert Ball. Uh, Honoured to be here. First what? returning guest. Where have you travelled to Ekmed from today? Uh, from Liverpool. So I'm an ID micro registrar finishing training in August. Um, so along with a big cohort of ID trainees. Yeah. Great. Okay. Um, so we're lunchtime, day one. What sessions have you been to this morning? Um, what was your What was your first session? So I started off with a session on UTIs. Uh, I thought I'd get the dry stuff. Urine's very in wet. Early. Yeah. Okay. So the four speakers from across Europe talking different different aspects of UTI. Uh, so the first one was a French consultant. Aurelian Dean, who was talking about, well, the main thing was about how poorly we define complicated UTIs, which is becoming a recurring theme already in the four hours of this conference, that our data is based on varying quality of uh, definitions of disease anyway. So he was saying that uh, the only thing that's really agreed is that people who are considered to have complicated UTI include men with UTIs and those with abnormal anatomy, and the rest of it is just variable whether it's considered a complicated UTI. Um, and then there was a really good talk uh, by a Danish-based microbiologist who kind of runs their UTI diagnostics, and she says, um, or she outlines how they process their urine samples. So they provide a result of urine culture within 24 hours, to wow. include the GPs. Including susceptibility results? Yeah. How? Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds impossible, based on our experience in the UK. Yeah. So, all samples received the same day in boric acid. Do you use boric yeah, acid? Yeah, we use boric yeah. acid, yeah. So we We're an upcoming that. episode, or past, I'm not sure where this will come in the release schedule. We're talking about boric acid and urine culture, so... So, it's been something on the horizon for us for ages. So, all samples received, and then they then use a lot of automation robots, like plating the samples, and then looking at them... Uh, and then discarding the ones that are negative. But within 16 hours, they have a um, its first read, and anything that's grown, they do moldy, and uh, at 17 hours as well, they get the like susceptibility testing. Wait, is it? And then they're doing direct susceptibility testing on urine. Yeah. So, and, and how do how have they done that as reliable? Is that have they got data to to show that this sort of is that the, using the UCAST direct susceptibility testing? So what are they using? Sounds really interesting. Manual disc on uh, MH agar plates for actual susceptibility testing. Wow. Okay, so so that's just reset because sometimes I feel like we do really well to get a urine culture out in 24, 72 hours with susceptibility results. And they just, just put the bar much higher now. Yeah, I mean, that is the thing. Like, earlier reading of plates, because there are, like, early UCAST breakpoints yeah. for, like, blood culture and things like that. But anyway, I mean, definitely something to look at. Yeah. So that was that uh, Katrin Hansen in Denmark. Hmm. So it's really impressive. So within 24 hours, providing results to GPs, to like clinicians in the ward that, I mean, obviously the most important thing is, is negative. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 
and certainly with our kind of delayed prescriptions, you've got a, a culture result within 24 hours. So the third talk was also really good by a Swiss microbiologist talking about recurrent UTIs. So she gave a few cases. Some of them were uh, like even more difficult to believe than this getting a urine culture result within 24 hours. Okay. So, so, <laughs> so one was she showed a email she received from a urology consultant saying, thank you very much for encouraging me to do a cystoscopy on this patient. I identified a diverticulum, urethral diverticulum full of pus. Full of pus? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God. So someone had a recurrent UTI. And so she like said, as a clinician, you should be encouraging, like we should be using our, our skills, interpretation, taking history from the patient, and then encouraging them to have these further tests where indicated. In this situation, they found the cause and they fixed it. Wow. Yeah, so someone who, pretty likely, they just carried on having... Yeah, just UTIs. getting more and more UTI, getting more and more resistance, getting uh, C. diff, you know, recurrent admissions. Yeah. Yeah. Another case was probably something more likely who came, got UTI, a, a, a youngish woman who had um, UTIs every couple of years, but then all of a sudden started having them like once every two weeks. And the patient was saying it's probably due to stress. She didn't really provide much of a hospital history, but it turns out they were on the new MAB. Oh. And it was related to that MAB. Um, and that's something I've been thinking about lately, like people presenting who are on these various immunomodulatory drugs, whatever. And then you look at the RCTs of them, and there's basically nothing recorded about association with infections, yet you're, we're clearly seeing it. And she was saying that the kind of phase two trial results you get of these drugs don't really show the true, his, the true story. Okay. I mean, the follow-up probably isn't long enough to identify these patients to get recurrent UTIs, for example. Um, so, yeah. It, in these patients, as a microbiologist, you, you only get a bit of information from the GP or you might never hear about it. But she's clearly involved in these patients. I don't know whether she's some kind of clinic or something. And taking a thorough history from them and finding out like actual like, patients where you make a significant difference. She wasn't a strong advocate for antibiotic prophylaxis. Um, but interestingly, when, when I don't know what, what in the context of MABs, you mean? In the context of people with the current UTIs, right? Yeah. Um, what, what do you? So she was talking about nitrofurantoin. Um, what's what's your take on long-term nitrofurantoin prophylaxis? Like, yeah, just, having, having read through all the guidelines recently, I think my take on it is that there there are there are certain patients in which antimicrobial chemo, that you know prophylaxis is indicated, but they're few and far between, and the evidence recommendations is weak. So. It's really about careful patient selection, and too often we're busy, and so you just start it as a as a default. But it's only really in those patients where you've excluded the sort of structural abnormalities and other causes of recurrence, and you've already tried other interventions like things like methenamine, or you know, ch- you know, looking at what what the cause is. And if you can't get there, maybe there's a case. But even then, it's like you can only use it for like six months and then stop. Cranberry uh, juice. Cranberry juice, I don't. I think the jury's still out on cranberry juice. So she was saying no to cranberry juice. Okay, no to cranberry juice. But jury's maybe, in, and the jury said no. But maybe D manos, but needs further studies. Yeah, but, D manos, yeah. But specifically, nitrofurantoin, and how do you feel about it, given it long term? Yeah, we always worry about sort of fibrosis, don't we? Retroperitoneal fibrosis and other, other organ Bony fibrosis. fibrosis as well. Yeah, yeah. So she was saying that, that she's never seen it in her career and she's used it a lot. Okay. I don't think I've seen it. Myself. I've a patient who had it, but I wasn't like yeah, I, I was. I was looking effect. after them long after that had happened. So she was saying 
that she she counsels them if they're on it for more than three months. Okay. Because it's an accumulative toxicity related thing, but it's very rare. And one interesting thing she was saying was that they typically present with acute pneumonia as their oh. first like indicator of developing pulmonary fibrosis, and then presumably it then kind of like becomes more fibrotic. Okay. And so she explains to your patients, just be aware that if you develop pneumonia, this might actually be the nitrofurantone. Right. So Although if, if you see someone on long-term nitrofurantone and presents with a pneumonia, yeah. that should be a trigger for you to think, let's review this, yeah. this prescription and maybe stop it. But maybe more specifically as us as ID micro people, yeah, that's is niche that knowledge. when we are advising GPs, for example, to give it, or if we're giving it ourselves, to have that as part of our counselling. Um, it's not something I need to look into, but that's, it could be something quite valuable, right? Yeah. Saying it early on, like... You, yeah, anyway. Yeah. So that was cool. Uh, so actually, that last speaker was Angela Hutner. She's really good. She's a really good speaker. Oh, and uh, drink loads of water. So, oh. <laughs> Callum, when you're getting your recurrent UTIs, drink yeah. lots of water. Not, yeah. Apparently, there, there's some evidence that uh, just telling patients as like a prophylactic thing to drink an extra one and a half liters per day okay. is associated with lower recurrence of UTIs. I have an interesting question about that because thinking about urine diagnostics recently um, if you drink lots of water you dilute your urine and so you're less likely to pick up an organism in your urine culture because the urines are more the urines more dilute and we define urine culture positivity on, on strength and also we do semi-quantitative cultures you take only a small volume of urine so is that urine you know asking people to drink more do they get less infections or do we just pick it up less because our diagnostics are based on culture I suppose it depends on what you put, set your cutoff value for. Maybe like if someone's drinking more water, then you have to have a lower cutoff value for it's logarithmic, right? urine culture. If you're drinking a logarithmically higher amount <laughs> yeah, of water, yeah, it's quite a <laughs> like yeah. Ten to the yeah, power okay. of three times. Yeah, that, that's so good. More. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, what but was maybe. the last? What was the last talk in the? It uh, was on urinary tract infections and urological procedures and interventions by a Spanish uh, consultant. So that, yeah, that was kind of interesting. So. 60% of people on neurological wards will have had will have antibiotics during that period in hospital. Okay. And like so many of them on prophylactic antibiotics. He was basically just advocating for like single stats pre-procedures. Okay. Using like phosphomycin, for example, rather than like protracted periods on antibiotics. Gentamicin? Uh, I suppose that is what we use. Do they use that? Yeah. They're using phosphomycin generally. Yeah. Maybe it's best not to get hung up on what particular what antibiotics use? people are okay. using. But just to, just talk about prophylaxis yeah. pre-procedure and then and then not not give it afterwards and yeah and for like upper he can kind of split it up into lower urinary tract like anatomical procedures so like prostates like if if they're not doing well post-procedure with an infection it's in general more likely to be a pharmacological problem so a lack of penetration to the prostate. Kind of common Makes sense. sense yeah. Whereas if it's upper urological, then it's more likely that there's a surgical, further surgical intervention required. So a blocked nephrostomy that needs to be unblocked or a stent that needs to be removed if possible. Anyway. Yeah, you see that a lot with patients that present with, like they've got an AKI, you know they've got some sort of urological problem, they're septic, and they feel you have to be like, you know, this is a blocked stent or this is, you know, exactly, yeah. hydronephrosis and so forth and otherwise. Even in patients without a urological history, to be honest, I think that's quite a a strong recommendation to get some imaging in those patients, which is often missed, I think, in upper UTIs, the importance of a of an upper, because it's so common, so people will just say, oh, it's polyneurophitis. 
yeah. antibiotics and then and leave. I don't know what the pickup value is for urinary tract ultrasound. It's pretty low, isn't it? Um, yeah. Maybe so it's, it's not about which patients to, to yeah. select it for. I mean, we often see them as bacteria mixed. I mean, that's where we see most of yeah, patients. Yeah, I guess that's yeah. Um, my, my case, my cases that I see are very biased, certainly because you don't get any involved in the complicated ones. So yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? So you go well if there's still remaining bacteria mixed after treatment, then you do a scan. But those patients are probably immunosuppressed, and that's why they're not just renal tract ultrasound right. everybody. I think. Yeah, <laughs> wait four days. If you're a radiologist and listening, then uh, <laughs> I didn't say that. this is where it began. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You can say no, but I'm still going to ask you. Yeah. Anyway, I suppose UTI is going to be a significant part of our work, so I thought I'll do the hard graph. Get I, know, I really early. wanted to go to that, but I went to the penicillin allergy session instead. Oh, yeah. And uh, well, I'll, ask, I'll try and talk to someone about that, because otherwise I'm interviewing myself. You don't want to talk to me. Well, Can I, I, I just tell you, you to listen, you. listen later on. You could interview me. Well, we could do that. I don't know if I've, I've not taken as many notes. I'm not ready. Oh, my God, I'm panicking. Um, well, we're going to wrap well, up this part now because I'm going to do each session as a different part. So, okay. Um, and then we'll do the penicillin You don't want to do it with me. That's, that's fine. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you, have to be, you have to become a co-host if you want to ask me. There's, there's extensive training. Is there? Is there like an initiation process? Initiation process. Hazy. Yeah, Jane, like in, Jane uh, just uh, makes fun of makes fun of you for ten minutes. You can make, you can uh, take it. Um, I'm thick skin enough for that. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Rob. What was what was the title of the session again? Uh, and you can, I think you can catch the ECMID recording. So if you're signed up, you can go into the, you can catch them up later on. So mm. if you're interested, this was antibiotic stewardship for you know tract infections, challenges and opportunities. Uh, yeah. Right. That's good. Thanks very much, Robert Ball. Thank you. Hello, we're back, and I'm joined by Kelly Bicknell, who's a clinical scientist in Portsmouth. Welcome. Thank you. How are you enjoying the conference? Oh, it's been amazing. It's, yeah. it's the first one I've been to um, post the pandemic, so it's been really nice to get the educational content and, and meet a lot of new colleagues and see all the new tech as well. Yes, it's, a, it's so nice to be back together in person. Uh, what, what's been some like a highlight of the conference for you so far? So my favourite session was the one on transplant infections, what's new in transplantation. Um, but I'd recommend if anyone wants to, they go back and watch it on the online platform. It was a top-level summary of what's uh, been going on in the research, but it was very applicable to clinical practice. So it was looking at both at um, prophylaxis and the approaches to that versus preemptive therapy, uh, about new treatments for refractory um, uh, infections, uh, so CMV um, and thinking of in particular. And then there was a talk as well on new diagnostics that will help us with stopping criteria when we've got these difficult cases. Okay. Um, and what was the stuff, so CMV treatments you said? Yeah, so, yeah. so um, talking about Mirivivir as a new uh, treatment for uh, refractory and resistant CMV um, and uh, how, that, like, the, how to use it, what sort of pitfalls might be, um, but a lot of the benefits that we're seeing and we've had a couple of cases locally that we've now uh, utilised that so it's really nice to get a bit more of a feel for, for, for that new it. antiviral. Yeah. I think it is a, an oral. An so, oral so formulation, great. I think we're able to have our patients at home on this right. uh, CMV treatment. So for these patients that we see in transplant where they've got like resistance to gancyclovir and 
previously been using like foscarnets and other yeah, quite very toxic parents of the beer. We're a renal yeah. transplant centre, uh, so we've got quite a wide geographical distribution of our patients, so having them coming in um, is, is, is quite challenging for them. Yeah. Um, and in and out for, for sort of like and were they seeing any like treatment failures, resistance to the to this new drug or uh, so there is evidence that that there, there's a sort of some signs that there will be resistance, and I think it's inevitable with any of your drugs you're going to yeah. uh, develop resistance. Yeah. But in terms of a, a novel therapy, I believe it was just uh, gone through NICE in the UK in January of this year, so it is something we're able to use, and it's something we're very uh, it's very new, so it's it's nice to share that sort of clinical experience. Great. Okay. Uh, any other highlights from the transplant session? Um, so there's BK, I always have a bit of BK, but in terms of therapies, it's just, um, there's not a lot of developments there, but it was just nice to see some sessions on BK for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, BK is something that I think after every time I, I hear about it, I'm like, I need to go look this up again, because yeah. it's, a, it's a niche transplant uh, issue, isn't it? But it's a very important one for those, mm. for those patients with it. Yeah, but we're starting to use Brinside up a bit for that, um, and not more, so that's, um, that's good, it has a few side effects. And, so, but it was just nice. I love BK, so I just like to see a session or two on that. Yeah. The, my other big highlight has really been the trade fair, to see all of the different companies, the different reps, um, from the really big providers to some of the new startups and a lot of the, um, the essentially new things coming to market. Yeah, yeah. Anything, anything you're particularly excited about coming to market? Um, so um, after that transplant session, yeah. there was, a, there was uh, some T cell uh, CMV assays that I think would be really useful to introduce locally. So that's what I'm going to go and seek out today. Wow, that sounds really exciting. Um, well, thanks very much for for sharing your for your learning. And uh, nice to have you on the show. Yeah, nice to meet you. Thank you. back. Um, it's Callum here. I'm joined by Professor Rob Reed. We're going to hear some live reactions from today's sessions. So what have been some highlights for you today? Well, um, well hi Callum, first of all. Um, <laughs> and uh, thanks for asking me along. Uh, today, uh, so I have to admit, because I'm the editor of the Journal of Infection, I did pop along to, the, uh, to a session on publication fraud, uh, which is, um, you know, it's a matter that's really close to editors' hearts because um, things are getting really sophisticated. I mean, a good example is the use of artificial intelligence to write papers, and this made me prick up my ears because recently I've had a couple of papers submitted to the journal where it was pretty clear to me it had been written by a robot. Um, and the reason I knew that was because, first of all, the paper didn't, even, didn't seem to have any soul. But uh, also paper didn't really seem to have much in, in the way of a point so it's but it is tricky for editors because this is going to become more and more sophisticated and I was left to ponder along with the uh, speakers at the symposium about uh, whether we would consider papers written by our artificial intelligence to be a form of scientific misconduct and I'm kind of coming to the conclusion that as as long as the authors sign up to the publication and act as guarantors, and as long as they are willing to give access to the data to anyone who requests it, 
then actually it probably is not scientific misconduct. It's just something that we'll just have to to live with and accommodate. Probably worse for editors like me is when people just want to get as many publications as they can and start turning out these artificial intelligence paper factories where um, the objective is to get as many papers as they can on their CV without them necessarily being of any use to anyone. That's a little bit more troublesome. Um, uh, it's obviously a rapidly evolving situation and it's um, something for us to keep our eyes on. Another, another phenomenon um, was the generation of figures and graphs by artificial intelligence. Literally, figures, images can be plucked out of, out of silicon and created, probably not even real. That's a bit of a problem because an editor isn't really going to be qualified to check up on that. Anyway, so that was a pretty good session. Ter terrifying. Terrifying. But uh, okay, going back to clinical <laughs> medicine, uh, one session I really enjoyed this afternoon was uh, the HLH session, you know, um, uh, histiocytosis, which um, more and more in infectious diseases, the more immunosuppressed patients we see, um, you know, with their very sophisticated immunosuppression, the more we're going to see HLH. I'm, I'm sure many trainees by now have seen HLH. It's the syndrome where you get fever, pancytopenia, splenomegaly, a raised ferritin, and the patient is really, really can be very, very sick indeed. And, uh, you know, in, the pediatricians are used to seeing this because they, you know, they'll see it as in the context of genetic syndromes. Often the oncologists will see it because it's often seen in the context of um, lymphomas and other malignancies. But we, as ID physicians, see it in some of our immunosuppressed patients, including HIV, who have other infections like Nishmania and obviously EBV. And managing these patients is becoming ever more complex. I mean, we go straight in with dexamethasone. But actually, the way that we manage them will vary from center to center and from context to context. It's clear to me uh, from the talk that I attended, which was given by um, an ID physician from Italy and also a hematologist from Germany, it's very clear that actually the, the management of HLH is much more sophisticated than I realized. Uh, I've... I've been advised to use a toposide in the past. I've been advised to use an anakinra. And actually, I learned that I'm better off sticking with dexamethasone until I get a proper hematologist to see um, what the context is and perhaps give more precise advice. The other key thing for us ID docs is that if you do recognize HLH, and remember, you know, there are a set of criteria that you use. You measure ferritin, you measure triglycerides, you measure IL-2 receptor, soluble, um, and, you know, you put that together with other scores like splenomegaly, etc. Uh, the thing for us to remember is we must hunt for the cause, because if it is leash, you know, if it is one of the other infections, even toxo, um, then, you know, you really do have to treat that adequately uh, in order for the patient to survive and standing any chance of getting better uh, with alongside the DEX. It's disastrous, of course, to give some, someone high-dose dexamethasone without treating their underlying infection. 
Well, otherwise, um, I'm afraid I've been to a lot of business meetings. Because when you're <laughs> Journal of Infection Editor, life can be a little bit boring. And also, I've been preparing for tomorrow's Grand Round. Clinical yes, Grand I'm Round. You know about to attend that. Yep, half you, eight in the morning, you, I'll be there. You know about that. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, hopefully those listening to this podcast will have time to sort of, um, you know, get their stuff together and get along to the Grand Round. Because I've been doing it for a long time now. I really, really enjoy it, actually. What I really enjoy is when you see clever, clever trainees, you know, on the stage presenting really well, fabulous cases, and we've got some great cases this year actually. Not too complex, but pretty archetypal. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to edit and release it before the, the conference, but hopefully people will be able to either pick up some of the learning from Twitter, because there's a lot of people tweeting, or if you've got signed up, you can watch all the lectures back on demand later on, I believe, so... Mm. Um, definitely something not to miss um, yeah. thank you very much for, for giving me some of your time today and very busy uh, conference for you uh, as it has been for everybody it's okay. uh, lovely to meet you thanks Callum now that the episode's done we hope you learn and had lots of fun so go forth and treat people with some of what you now know